All right, go ahead and turn. Romans chapter 2, Psalm, I believe, 62. Have those two marked. Romans chapter 2 and Psalm 62. Interesting uh, today is that the lectionary reading has Romans chapter 2, and uh, we won't read the whole chapter, but we'll read the verse that you know we've been working on, and we'll read it again. Romans chapter 2, verse 6, you probably know it by memory by now, hopefully. Romans chapter 2, verse 6, who will render to every man according to his deeds. Speaking of God, he will render to every man according to his deeds. And if you look at Psalm 62, Psalm 62, and you look at verse 12, We read this, Psalm 62, verse 12, which this is the psalm of the day in the lectionary. In fact, the responsive reading part is verse 12. That's the part everyone is supposed to repeat when reading the psalm. Uh, Psalm 62, verse 12 reads like this, Also unto thee, O Lord, belongeth mercy, for thou rendest to every man, renderest to every man according to his work. Uh, that's That's an Old Testament teaching. New Testament teaching, and it is because of that teaching that we now have been, I don't know, we're in what, part 11, I think now, part 12 now of this series. So let's go through this. The Bible clearly seems to indicate that we are justified by what? Faith. However, the Bible, as we just read in two passages, seems to clearly indicate that we're going to be judged according to our works. This poses a theological problem that we have been working on now for a long time to resolve. We are using a book, one of the Four Views books, where it gives four different views. We're looking at these views, and I know that I could just summarize each section, but I'm not. I'm, I'm trying to have us go through the book because it's forcing us first to hear a view presented by itself, not me summarizing it, And it's giving us the ability to question a lot of things they say and challenging it. And it's bringing up a lot of issues. So I want to begin tonight by reminding you of some major points that we have talked about. Now, this is probably not all of the major points. If you feel that there was another major point, please let me know. We'll add it to the list. But I want you to keep kind of a a reminder of some of the major issues that we're talking about. Because some of these major issues... We are discovering or making these major issues because we're going through a book, these book, this book presenting these different views, and we're not just allowing the view to speak, we're critiquing the view and bringing things up. Does that make sense? And there's some major issues that we've talked about. So let's go through this. Number one, one of the first major points that we've talked about, and it's based off the first view. I remember the first view says that we, as Christians, will, we will be judged according to our works, however... Not at the final judgment, but at a rewards judgment. So one of the major points, and we've talked about this now a number of times, is that we we have seen the possibility of a separate judgment for believers to only determine rewards or the loss of reward. That is a major point. And the reason that's a major point is no matter, we may not come up with all the answers, but if we know that there is at least a judgment right? For believers, that involves works, 
That doesn't resolve all the language used in some of these verses about judgment, but it at least gets us something. You know, at least we're holding on to some. Look, there is a judgment. Lost people are going to be judged according to their works. We will be judged according to our works. The difference is that will determine their salvation. Their, their, you know, it will uh, bring about their condemnation. And for us, it just determines our reward. That at least... You know, I, I wish it would resolve the problem. It doesn't completely resolve the problem, but we need to remember that possibility. Now, just remember, for that to be true, we'd have to argue there's more than one judgment, but that creates far fewer problems than this whole justified by faith, judged according to works problem itself. Does that make sense? All right. That's the first major point that we've talked about. Number two, when the New Testament teaches that we are not saved according to works... Is it only referring to works of the law, which means Old Testament laws? However, could other works be required? Remember that? That's a major point we've talked about. Over and over and over, when the New Testament says that we are not saved according to works, what phrase does it use? Works of the Law And what's a good passage that we talked about uh, numerous times, and we spent a lot of time on it. Go to Galatians chapter 2. I want you to see this. Galatians chapter 2, verse 16. Everybody there? All right. Knowing, uh, I'll read this, Galatians 2, 16. Knowing that a man is not justified by the... See the phrase, works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Jesus Christ, that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by works of the law, for the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. So we, so one of the major points we talked about, is it possible that when the New Testament says, hey, you're not saved according to works, it's only referring to Old Testament laws. Okay, ceremonial laws, right? Purity laws, all the different civil laws, all of those Old Testament laws, you know, Sabbath keeping, diet, all those different things. Is it possible that that's all it's referring to, but other laws could be required? Other works could be required. Now remember, this this comes uh, comes into play with the second view, but it's something we have to consider, correct? Yes? Everybody need to remember, we, we need to consider that carefully, even though it's not, it may go against the way we think. We have, to, we have to at least acknowledge that it is very interesting that over and over and over, when it speaks of we're not saved by works, it almost always uses the phrase works of the law. And, you, and there's only one law it could be referring to. Yeah. It could only be referring to the Old Testament law. I mean, there, there would be no other way to interpret that. All right. Number three. Third major point that we talked about is that we kind of discovered and we kind of were given a reminder of how a verse can so easily be given an interpretation apart from its context. We got a sharp reminder on Sunday of how easy a verse can be given an interpretation and nobody ever considers the context. And what was the example of that? Does everybody remember that example? I just read it to you a few seconds ago. Galatians 2.16. Remember when we looked at the context of Galatians 2.16, what did we learn? 
The works he's referring to are what works? The Old Testament laws. Why? Remember the context? What was occurring? Does everybody remember? Well, let's go back and look. But when Peter was come to Antioch, Paul says, I withstood him to his face because he was to be blamed. Right? For before that certain came from James, he did eat with the Gentiles. But when they were come, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing them which were of the... Most likely that's the Judaizers, right? Okay, those are the circumcision. And the other Jews disassembled likewise with him, um, insomuch that Barnabas also was carried away with their dissimulation. But when I saw that they walked not upright according to the truth of the gospel, so this is, Paul thinks this is a gospel issue. This is, a, this is an issue with the gospel. This is not just like, oh, Peter just won't eat with them. This is the gospel. Because what, what is he ultimately saying by not eating with those Gentiles? They're not part of the family of God. They're not saved unless they do what? At least begin to, uh, at least circumcision or other things, uh, basically become a Jew, right? I said unto Peter before them all, If thou being a Jew livest after the manner of Gentiles and not as do the Jews, why compellest thou the Gentiles to live as do the Jews? who are by Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles. Then it goes into the idea of how we're justified. So clearly, what is Paul saying there? Remember, you're not justified according to those Old Testament laws. I just want to remind you of how easy all of us have fallen into the trap of reading Galatians 2.16 literally completely apart from that context. We almost do what with Galatians 2.16? That this is saying that we're saved apart from any works. Does everybody understand that? Galatians 2.16 is not saying we're not saved from any works. It is specifying a certain kind of works. Everybody remember that point? All right. So that's the third major point. Is That's a reminder. The fourth major point. And we talked a little bit about this on Sunday. Is at, as we continue to work on this, we have to just remind remind ourselves that the pursuit of truth, right? The pursuit of truth is more important than a desire to be comfortable or for certainty. If we want comfort, if you want to be comfortable, if you want certainty, do not pursue truth. Right? Because truth constantly makes you uncomfortable, constantly calls into question things, right? I mean, we're questioning things we're not supposed to question, right? We're not supposed to question. No church, you can go to a million churches, they're never going to question what we're questioning. But we're, why are we questioning it? Because we were bored? No, we're questioning it because y'all, y'all thought it was a great idea to study Romans. And I gave you a warning, and y'all said, no, let's do it anyway. And I'm like, okay. And we get to Romans 2, 6, and what happens? We're told that we're judged according to our works. Now we've got to ask some questions, do we not? Right? Now, I know what you're saying. No, there's other churches who got past that verse in one su- some Sunday. Yeah, but they didn't answer the question. They avoided the problem. All right? Next. This is very important. All right? Um... We called into question, we, we, I, I challenged, or I almost offered up a rejection, now listen carefully, this is very important, to the popular teaching that there is some guarantee 
that Christians have some supernatural power inside of them producing works. I offered kind of a rejection to that. Now that, I want to make sure you realize you cannot be telling anyone else that because <laughs> that you, you, your, your Christian friends will think you're a heretic. But I, I, I have a hard time with that teaching. I have a hard time with that teaching because again, if all Christians per, have this power inside of us to produce these works, there, there should be something. I mean, there... I mean, something, put it this way, I, I work, you if, you, if you've ever been in the work world, you knew people who were not saved, okay? And what we claim is when we go to that place of employment, and I sit next, you know, maybe in the same cubicle or in the same office or whatever, whatever your, your work situation is, you know, on the construction site, wherever, you're standing there in front of people, and what you are claiming, and what most Christians are claiming, they may not want to be bold about this claim, we are bold in church about the claim, is that, hey guys, you don't have God inside of you giving you supernatural power to do good works, I do. Now, you've all, you know, now I know all of you at some point in your Christian life, you've believed, okay, the Spirit's in me producing all these works. And so, but you've probably never been thought about it in that way. You look across at that other, hey, I've got God inside of me doing a work. He doesn't. Because when you get down to it day in, day out, you realize you're not that different. Maybe on the external parts, they may throw out a few cuss words, but you'll find yourself gossiping. You find yourself slandering. You find yourself complaining. You find yourself not being content. You find, you know, you're like, wait a minute. There, there should be a, a more substantial difference, not just externally, but internally. But you know, you know what I'm talking about. You know that there's lost people who are a lot like you. Now, you can always pick that one lost person who's out doing all kinds of horrible things, and you can pat yourself on the back that you're so much different. I just have a hard time with the teaching. I have a hard time with the teaching. I've, no, I've been around Christians for a, way, a long time, and I, I just find ourselves too much like the world. Too much like the world. I mean, every study, I mean, put it this way. Shouldn't there be a way to prove Shouldn't you, they should be able to just do a study and say, look, man, these people have some kind of power to do good that these other people don't. And it's never been proven. Right? So that's an important point. And then last major point is, the, we, I've, I stress the critical importance on, of how we define justification. Everybody remember that? Remember, I, I, I started, I, I, in my mind, I kind of told us that I think this entire study will come down to what? Our definition. Our definition of justification. I think this entire study, because whatever definition of justification you, you come up with, guess what? You're stuck. You can't come up with a solution to the justified by work or justified by faith, judged according to works problem that contradicts your justification definition. Does that make sense? And that's something I had not thought of in the, in the past, but I think that's a critical point. All right, those are all major points that we've talked about. There's a lot of other things that we could add to the list, but I think you get, I just want you to kind of, I, I just want to keep giving you something to hold on to as we go deeper and deeper down this rabbit hole. And hopefully at one point we'll find our way back out.
All right? All right, so we've been looking at view number two. All right, let's do, what's view number one? Everybody knows view number one. Christians will be judged according to works at the rewards judgment, but not at the final judgment. All right, second view. Justified apart from and by works. At the final judgment, we will be judged at the final judgment, but works will serve as evidence. And remember, they use the term evidence of justification, and that's where, that's where we threw a major red flag, because there's no way it can be, if our definition of justification involves imputed righteousness and all the different things we talked about. So, view number two in the book, what did it do that was so significant? It, it limited the definition of justification as only being an acquittal and that we're not guilty. That's nothing about imputed righteousness, nothing about anything along those lines. Okay, now I'm not going to go through everything else in the book. We're up to the point where um, Paul, or Paul, the author is going to look at the necessity of obedience in the book of Galatians. All right? The necessity of obedience in Galatians. I'm going to back up just a little bit from where we stopped. I'm going to go quick until we get to where we weren't. Okay? When we get to the new area, if you don't remember it, raise your hand and say something. Sarah may have it marked where we stopped. If, you know, if she wants to get there, let me know. Then I can really then start taking it apart. All right, everybody ready? Everybody, okay, everybody kind of caught up on the same page now? All right, we got 45 minutes. We're going to go quick. No, we're going to go quick until the wheels come off and we're stuck. Here we go. The necessity of obedience in Galatians. The necessity of obedience for salvation is not restricted to Romans chapter 2. Now, please note how he says that. The necessity of obedience for salvation is not restricted to Romans chapter 2. In fact, it is a common theme in Paul. He gives all kinds of scriptures. I'm not going to have a stop and read through all of them right now. If we need to, we will. He's, going to, he's basically making an argument that, hey, you can find all of these verses that say, seem to say you're justified by faith, but you have all these other verses that seem to say, wait a minute, if you're going to be saved, you have to have what? Works and obedience. Now, all he's doing is emphasizing what we've already discovered. There's a problem. Now, what we're waiting for, remember, his, his solution. We started getting to a hint to that solution. We'll get back to it, all right? But for space reasons, I will focus on Galatians. All right, that's what he's going to focus on. He's only going to focus on Galatians. He's not going to go through all those other passages and other books right now. As noted above, the letter to the Galatians features the gospel of grace. Paul emphasizes that righteousness and the reception of the Spirit are not obtained via the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Quotes Galatians 2.16. We agree. Now, we, st- we, we, may, we may not have an agreement yet on should we only understand works of the law to only refer to the Old Testament, but I would argue in Galatians 2.16 you don't have really any other choice. Right? Okay, but he continues. But the Pauline emphasis on grace, he gives all kinds of verses where he emphasizes grace in, in Galatians, does not preclude the importance of good works. Right? No one's going to have a problem that, that good works, no one's going to have a problem with someone saying good works are important. The issue is, are good works required for salvation or 
Are they absolutely necessary to somehow prove that I am saved? And if they are, well then, you know, we get back to that whole issue. All right. In fact, the grace of God is the foundation and basis for good works. Faith alone does not, to paraphrase a popular saying, mean that faith is alone, for faith expresses itself in love. Simply the idea that if you truly have faith, you're going to do something, you're going to prove it. Okay. Again, that sounds good in theory, right? What's the problem with it? Okay, what, what do you have to do, and how much proof do you need, and can you ever have enough proof, and, and is it still required for salvation, and all those questions that we've talked talked about. Now listen carefully. Believers are called upon to walk in the Spirit. Be led by the Spirit. March in step with the Spirit and sow to the Spirit and thereby to manifest the fruit of the Spirit. Now go to Galatians chapter 6 verse 8. We did not take time on this on Sunday, but we're going to take time right now. All right, this is a very, he's going to make, he's going to spend some time with this verse, and we need to make sure we get this. Galatians 6, 8. Everybody there? All right. Go back to verse 7 for context. Be not deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. Everybody, millions of sermons on that verse, millions of, of applications to that verse. Now, ver, and this is another situation where we probably never considered this verse in light of salvation. We just dealt with this, hey, you're going to reap what you sow, and we, we, we uh, basically restrict the verse to, me, to talking about what? Everyday life. Right? He's going to take it to judgment. Look what he does. For he that soweth to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption, but he that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. Now, how is he going to interpret that? He's going to interpret that if you want everlasting life, what do you have to do? Sow to the Spirit. If you don't sow to the Spirit, you do not get eternal life. He's viewing this in a soteriological way. Now, I guarantee you, none of you have ever read it in a soteriological way. I doubt you have. Or unless you convinced that you've always sowed to the Spirit. Okay? Right. I'm not so sure that you can convince yourself of that. All right? Here's what he says. The one who sows to his own flesh will reap corruption from the flesh. But the one who sows to the Spirit will reap eternal life from the Spirit. The contrast between corruption and eternal life shows that eschatological salvation is at stake and whether one sows to the flesh or sows to the Spirit. In other words, when he says eschatological salvation, future salvation... When you stand before God and you're going to be judged, you're going to be judged whether you sowed to the Spirit or sowed to the flesh. If you did not sow to the Spirit, you get condemnation. All right? 
The phrase eternal life represents the life of the age to come. It will hardly do to say that eternal life refers to reward here. Now, I do agree with that. If I'm going to interpret Galatians 6, 8 as referring to um, in a soteriological way, I can't make that about rewards. Because it says you're going to sell what? Eternal life. I agree with the book on that. Now, we could argue, should I interpret it as soteriological, but this comes down, well, now what's getting ready to start happening here? Now it becomes a hermeneutical battle. How do you interpret it? How do you interpret it? Everyone's going to interpret it on the way that doesn't disagree with their view on salvation, right? Everyone's going to view it the way they want. All right, okay, here we go. Now, he's talking about interpreting this to be referring to rewards. Such an interpretation betrays, uh, betrays special pleading, which does not accord with the way the term is used elsewhere. And then he gives some other places where this idea of eternal life is used that clearly is referring to heaven. Right? I'm not going to get into a hermeneutical argument right now about that. I'm just going to give you his point. Sowing to the Spirit and walking in the Spirit are not optional. For the one who fails to do so will experience eschatological judgment and destruction. Now, I want you to realize, he's, he, he's a Protestant. He's not saying you're judged according to your works, but it sure sounds like that's what he just said. If you do not sow to the Spirit, boom. That's, that's, now I've got an entire article right here on my iPad that goes a completely 100% opposite view here, right? I want to get to it, but I want to see how far we can make it in the book. We may, we may not have to stop in the book and go to this because I want you to see a completely different, and again, these are all Protestants fighting this out. We haven't even got to the Catholic view yet. Protestants don't even agree on any of this. Right? And that's why, because you, you said in most churches, you think that we're all in agreement in all of this, that we're not even close. Right? I just want you to see Galatians 6 8. This, this is a major verse. Right? If you want to talk about major points, you may want to say Galatians 6 8 may just become a major point. How do you interpret Galatians 6 8? I, I, I don't have a good, I don't know if y'all, I don't know if y'all have a good answer. Right? Here we go. Let me read, let me read that statement again, because this, I mean, it's a major statement that he's making here. Sowing to the Spirit and walking in the Spirit are not optional. For the one who fails to do so will experience eschatological judgment and destruction. Yeah, he's speaking of hell. It is hard to imagine a statement that could be clearer than this. Those who sow to the flesh will not experience final salvation. Those who sow to the flesh will not experience final salvation. I have no idea how you can make that statement and still try to tell me you believe we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ alone. I don't know how you can even pretend that. Now, we all know what he's going to do. He's going to try to say, well, you're going to sow to the uh, Spirit because if you're saved, that's just what you will do. But then that means what happens to every time I'm not sowing to the Spirit? Do I have to sow to the Spirit 50% of the time? 52% of the time? 53% of the time? If I, what's, the, what's, the, what's the cutoff? 
He hasn't given me a cutoff, has he? He may can't sounds like I need to sow to the Spirit what? 100% of the time. You can't, you, none of you, none of, no, I hope no one here wants to pretend that y- y'all do that. Because if y'all do, um, well, I, actually you can pretend that. You just need to give me the video of, you know, about a month of your life showing me how great you do that. But I, I just, ah, oh, this is, I want to throw my Kindle across the room. I just, I, this, this book is supposed to be fixing our problem and it's not, is it? All right, here we go. Let's continue. We find a similar uh, statement in Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 through 21. Everybody remember Galatians 5, 19 to 21? We spent a lot of time working on that. It says, now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these. And it gives you all these works, right? Okay. <clears throat> After listing the works of the flesh, Paul makes a most interesting statement in verse 21, which he does, and it has always bothered me, Okay. Everybody knows the famous verse in 21? Galatians 5.21 Envying, murder, drunkenness, revelings, and such alike, of the which I tell you before, as I have told you in time past, that they which do such things Now, if we look at this list, David committed a number of these. Did he not? Everybody should say yes. Okay. Um, Noah committed some of these. Um, in, fact, in fact, if we go through these, I can pretty much find everyone in the Bible committing some of these. Right? I mean, strife and seditions and heresies. I mean, Peter causing all that problem in Galatia, right? That Paul had to confront him. He was causing division and strife. In fact, he was not staying true to the gospel. You could even cons- accuse him of committing a heresy. Yeah? She's on the list. Okay? So, now, is it... And, and I know what people are going to say. This is not talking about a one-time act. This is considering a habitual practice. Right? That's, that's what some will argue. But let's see what he does with it. Just... Hey, let's be honest. No matter what view you take, verse 21 is a hard verse. You've just got to either, well, we typically, how how have probably most of you handled verse 21 in the past? You probably went with the habitual practice idea. Hey, yeah, this is, this would be the character of someone who's lost. Okay, all right, well. (laughs) How, how How do you work that? You know what I'm saying? Because if, if you go through this list, do we go? Are we do we do we bring Jesus' words in here? Because Jesus' words would would mean that anyone who looks at a woman with lust has committed adultery. Anyone who's looked at someone with lust and they're not married could have committed fornication. Okay. Exactly, idolatry. Yeah. So I mean. Now, unless this is only speaking of external. Well, Jesus makes it internal. If he makes it internal, then who's not committed these things? I don't know. All right. He says, Paul makes the most interesting statement in 521. I'm telling you in advance, just as I told you before, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. 
It is likely that Paul regularly warned believers about the consequences of turning towards evil since he informs the Galatians that he had instructed them about these matters previously. The kingdom of God refers here to God's end-time kingdom. And he gives all kinds of cross-references to try to prove that. Okay, uh, Practicing the works of the flesh is not a minor matter. For those who pursue evil will not enter the kingdom of God. All right? The book of Galatians celebrates the grace of God in Christ, but God's grace is effective grace. Grace transforms human beings so that they live a new life. Here we go. Here's going to be the key. Right? If you're truly saved, you're going to be transformed because grace transforms. Now, what does this sound like? I, I, I don't know how a Protestant can read that and not go, whoa, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. This sounds like infused righteousness. Right? I received something, right? In this case, he's using the word grace. I am given God's grace, and what does that grace do? Transform. If it doesn't transform, I'm not saved. Now, if it, all, if it transforms, then all believers should be transformed to... I mean, it, again, it should be easily distinguishable. It shouldn't be ever a question. And so this is, this is what this view inevitably leads to. It inevitably leads to anytime someone who doesn't even look close to what a Christian should be, we immediately say, lost. Which, and then if you are honest with yourself, you begin to question your own salvation, and then you begin to question whether Christianity even works, which leads to what I talked about Sunday, this disillusionment that I think a lot of people just, man, I mean, you, I mean we hear about it all the time. Christians fighting, Christians, church splits, uh, Christian marriages falling apart, Christian families falling apart. I mean, we hear about all these things, and you're like, well, and, but you, well, all these Christian books kind of like say, it, it's going to transform you, it's going to change you, it's gonna, it makes all these promises, reality doesn't live up to it. I mean, we also what happened this week in Abilene. Pioneer Drive had to release two statements. Yep. Now, the K-Texas keep referring to him as a pastor, which is start, was, I'm going to have to call K-Texas. It's starting to bother me because it sounds like he was only uh, involved in the music aspects of things, not the pastor. So I don't know, you know why they keep referring to him as a pastor. But whatever he was, he was in the church. And it looks like he's being accused of some form of you know, sexual abuse and sexual crime. Now, here's the thing. It's, it has nothing to do about Pioneer Drive. This is about all churches. Everybody goes crazy about the Catholic Church. Oh, the, church, the sex scandal is horrible. It is horrible in the Catholic Church. It's horrible in the Southern Baptist. They had to release their, their report on, oh my goodness, how many children have been abused in the Southern Baptist. Independent Fundamental Baptists have had to release reports talking about it's, a, it's an epidemic everywhere. Well, it's an epidemic outside of the church. It's an epidemic. How can it be? So what do we, what's our answer? All those people are lost. Why? Because they committed a sin that we don't commit. See, and that leads to disillusionment. People are like, well, where's all this power? So he, he's going to argue, hey, hey, look, God's grace is effective. It transforms. 
It transforms human beings so that they live a new life. Paul is not talking about perfection. Here, note that. Here we go. If there's always the but, right? Hey, God's grace is a, is a transforming one. It just can't get you to wear perfection. It, well, isn't that a kind of a weak, transforming power? That would be like me saying, hey, Bobby, I have got the cure for cancer. But, doesn't always work. Well, then is that a cure? No! <laughs> right? That's a, that's a possible cure. Right? Is, is it a transforming grace or it's not a transforming grace? It's a transforming grace, it just won't be perfect. Well, then how much does it have to transform me to prove that I'm saved? Right? I mean, if I look at the way I lived my life before I was saved, <laughs> okay, I don't really need, I could, I could commit a lot of sin as a Christian and none, none of y'all should even question anything about my, if you look at my life before I was saved and anything I've done wrong after, nobody should even judge me because I've got plenty enough transforming grace to put everyone else to shame considering how I lived my life before. Now some of you probably didn't commit a lot of bad things. Right? Okay. For example, um, I would think that the Danzler kids, I mean, I don't know if they're wild rebellion. Maybe it was crazy and they kept it under wraps, okay? But most likely, you know, if I looked at the, you know, if, the, if, if Sarah or Stephen came and said, we need to talk about our kids, I'd probably look at them like, that's, ooh, ooh, that's some really bad stuff. I mean, I don't know what you're going to do right there. They're out of control. I probably would laugh, right? So guess what? If they claim to be saved, they got to up their game. They got to up their game. Okay, they got to be like, I need to see some transforming grace. Someone from my background, all I got to do is, you know, stop selling drugs, carrying a gun, beating up people behind all sorts with a baseball bat, all the horrible things I did. I could go all day. All, all, I could go on and on and on and on and on. I, I mean, I just show up to church. I mean, when I walked into Jim Ned the night after I got saved, the next day carrying a Bible, everybody was like, He's got a Bible? Is he going to burn it in the middle of the school? I mean, I used to be the one carrying the Satanic Bible. You know, they're like, what is going on here? I didn't need to do anything else. That's transforming grace. How does the person who didn't do all those bad things show transforming grace? Do, do we get judged on a curve? You see how that can lead to a lot of, like, like it just leads to a lot of confusion. Like, that statement sounds good. Okay, yes, you're right. I can imagine you sitting in a church where the pastor says, hey, you're going to be judged according to your works. Don't worry about it because your works are going to prove you're saved. And that sounds so good, right? And, you're, and because, hey, God, if he saves you, he's going to change you. And you say, and then if we move on quickly, everyone feels like that's a good answer. But when I start re- raising up some of these issues, you're like, realize, well, wait a minute. How transforming does it have to be? And he puts a limit on how transforming. Where can the transformation not get me to? <laughs> All right. Right. Oh, I was going to get there, but yes. All right. In fact, I'll read it all together because, oh, because I think this is important. Listen carefully because I think you see the kind of the back. I think you see the struggle the author's even having. The book of Galatians celebrates the grace of God in Christ, but God's grace is effective grace. Grace transforms human beings so that they live a new life. 
Paul is not talking about perfection, nor does he advocate works right righteousness. Right? But there is a significant change in the lives of those who are indwelt and empowered by the Holy Spirit. So not, not only does there have to be transformation, there has to be what kind of transformation? Significant. Now remember, he's not saying that the significant transformation saves you. What he's saying is the significant transformation proves you're saved, and if you don't have that proof, you're not saved. So what do you have to constantly be doing in your life? Looking for the proof. And where are you looking to find proof of your salvation? In your works. Not in the finished work of Christ. And that, that destroys the definition. That, that has nothing to do with our definition of justification. Because our definition of justification is, I am declared righteous, perfectly righteous, because his righteousness has been imputed to my account. This, this is just, it, I just want you to understand, it sounds good. Like, right now you're shaking your head and going, yeah, this is all garbage. Right, but I just want you to realize, it sounds good unless we, we really start thinking about it and talking about it. It sounded, I mean, I, I worked on, from this, from this perspective is how I operated most of my Christian life. At some point I had to realize, this is not working, this is not working, this is not working. All right, hey, and now listen, so uh, there's going to be significant change in the lives of those who are indwelt and empowered by the Holy Spirit. Believers have been liberated from this present evil age through Christ's self-giving death. They are freed by his death from slavery to the elements of the world. Now, I want you to what, what this becomes... Very, remember, we talked about this when we talk about human depravity and Pelagianism, and we talked about a lot of those things, right? Okay, I want to make sure we understand something. This is very important. This becomes the issue of when, once, because this is how many Christians teach it, when we, before we're saved, we're slaves to sin. After our salvation, we have been set free. Well, if I've been set free from the bondage to sin, what should I be able to accomplish? Perfect obedience. If I've been freed, and, and, and that's where I have a problem. See, that sounds good in a sermon, right? You were a slave. Now you've been set free. Ooh, yes. Hey, free indeed. And everybody's like, amen. And then everybody walks out, and you're like, well, you know, and you, you, I just, you want to follow the people as they're driving home, you know, you know go, listening and go, hey, 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 you're fighting in the car. You're fighting in the car. Remember, you've been set free. There shouldn't be any problems in that car. Because none of you are, are have any sin. You're all free from it. Okay. Right. But we all know that that, that that free amens is good for Sunday morning. It doesn't work so much Monday. All right. He continues. They have died to the law since they are crucified with Christ. And now Christ lives in them. They are children of the free woman, not the slave woman. And thus they are to stand in the freedom they have in Christ. Through the Spirit, they are now enabled to serve one another in love. 
We're now enabled to do it. We can serve one another in love. Well, if churches have people filled who've been ser- who now are enabled to serve one another in love, why do we have so many problems in churches? Christian families. The world and its evil have been crucified for believers through the cross of Christ. For believers are transferred into, uh, transferred into a new creation. Galatians knows nothing then of autonomous works or of works produced by the virtue of the human being. Now this is his, you know, get out of free jail card. Hey, they're not your works. They're the works God does in you and through you. So it's not your works. So when I say works are required for your salvation, I'm not talking about your works. I'm talking about God's work through you. But that then, that absolutely demands a belief that God's work will show up. And what happens when it seems to be missing? Good works are energized and accomplished by the Holy Spirit, being rooted in the cross uh, and the cross work of Jesus Christ, by which believers have been freed from the old creation and have been inducted into the new creation. Galatians makes it clear that these works are necessary for eternal life. So what works are necessary for eternal life? Here are the works that are necessary for eternal life. Not the works of the law, but the works that the Holy Spirit does through you. All right? Works of the law, those are the works you did. So he is going to separate those two, and, but he's going to separate it differently than the Catholics. Right? He's going to separate it this way. The works of the law won't save you because they were fleshly works. The works of the Spirit will, are, are required for your salvation because they prove you're saved. So he's going to not make them the basis, but they're going to be the evidence of. That's where he's going here. It's very, it's very similar to the Catholic system. It's very similar to the Catholic system. All right? Those who don't sow to the Spirit will not experience eternal life. Those who practice the works of the flesh will be excluded from the kingdom. Clearly, Paul did not think emphasizing the necessity of works compromised his gospel of grace. And, and if he did not think so, neither should we. All right. That finishes that section. All right. Now, where does this leave us? This leaves us with two big problems. All right. Everybody ready? All right. Problem number one. And this is a unique problem to Victory Baptist Church. This leaves us with the problem of what should we actually believe when it comes to the power we have or don't have as believers. You're a Christian, right? Now, every, everyone in this room, in your Christian life, you were probably taught that now you have the Holy Spirit living in you, correct? And you were taught that that, that, that Spirit inside of you accomplishes what? Power? Everybody have been told, you've been told power a lot, right? Yes, power. They usually connect the word with dudamis and power. Remember, that's where we get the word dynamite. That's usually how it goes in a sermon along those lines. We have this dynamite type of power. We have the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead is living inside of you. The same spirit that moved upon creation and was involved in creating 
is working inside of you to create a new creature. You have this power. I mean, I mean, I could preach these sermons. I've heard them a million times. You have this power inside of you. Therefore, you can be more than a conqueror. You can go out. You, you're overcomers. You can overcome sin. You can overcome temptation. You can stand against it because the power of God is inside of you. I could preach it. And, so, and if I preached it that way in most churches, I'd get amen. I may even get applause. And it sounds good. Sounds really good. Sounds really good. But that pastor has to know when he's preaching that, that all those people who are clapping and cheering are the same people who gossip, slander, backbite, probably threaten to get him fired every time he doesn't do the things they want, lie, cheat, steal, adultery is happening, teenagers in the church committing premarital sex, there's men in the church addicted to porn, there's all these, all these things are happening in the church while he's up there preaching all of this, you've got power, amen, and everybody's applauding. And that this is what leads some people to go, this is all just a game. Yeah. And the, and the pastor knows all the problems. So what should we believe? Now, I don't have an answer for you, but that, that's something you have to struggle with. That's something you have to struggle with. Now, I'm going to offer, I want to continue in this book, but I'm going to try to go quickly through this article that I saw today. All right? They call this the reality of a believer's wayward walk. And what they argue is that it's very clear in the Bible that men of God commit horrible sins. They fall short. They do horrible things. Why is that? All right. Now, I'm not gonna, I can't go through everything because of time. But they, they clearly argue that, wait a minute, uh, and they clearly go after this idea that the way, in fact, this is how, I'll just read some of this. Because many professing Christians seem to be so worldly and lacking discernment in spiritual things, a host of pastors and Bible teachers have dealt with this problem. Here's the problem. You've got worldly Christians. Don't seem very godly. They're, they're worldly. Everyone agree that that's a problem? Yes? Okay. All right. Now, what they say is that some Bible teachers and pastors have dealt with this problem by claiming that such individuals are not saved in the first place. If I can't see a change in Bobby's life, then surely they are not saved. And they knew Bobby because they put him in. No, they didn't actually. Okay. Right. right. And that's the way that, I mean, we've, we've, all, we've all operated under that. Well, they can't be saved. They can't be saved. They can't be saved. A true Christian would never, and then you fill in the blank, a true Christian would never commit such and such sin. They have changed the doctrine of repentance into a change of life rather than a change of mind. That gets into a whole argument about how we define repentance, but that's okay. They have changed the doctrine of eternal security into a probation security that forces a person to look at his works to determine whether or not he will persevere until the end. They have changed the doctrine of justification and regeneration into a man-centered effort that focuses on self rather than focusing on Christ alone and his finished work. That's what we've talked about. Now, they go, they go a step further than me, and this is what always happens in the Protestant world. Once you come up with one solution, then the other solution 
is heresy. So then this is what they go on to say. Satan has once again gained a battle victory by popularizing another gospel. Now the fact they call those other view another gospel are claiming heresy, anathema. All right, which again, I, I, I hate when we do that. I know sometimes we have to do that, but sometimes it may be just people trying to figure these problems out. All right. Um, he goes, the teaching that a true believer will always show visible fruit in his or her life and that there is no such thing as a carnal Christian or a lukewarm Christian exists is completely contrary to Scripture, and yet this teaching seems to be increasing, uh, is increasingly prominent among evangelicals and especially fundamentalists. Many believers today have a desire to judge the reality of their own salvation or that of others on the basis of their outward walk and witness or lack thereof. Yet the idea that a believer needs to examine his actions for, um, or others to determine whether or not one is truly saved is unscriptural. The implication of this kind of theology is that salvation is only genuine through saving faith plus certain subsequent works or behavior. That's what literally what we just read. Visible actions that can be quantified and observed by others. That's what's required. Those who embrace this teaching often ignore or reject the reality of positional, progressive, and perfective sanctification. All right? In other words, forget positional sanctification. Forget progressive. Right? Because, I mean, you've got to see it. Right? And, uh, you know, so they, they go through this. Now, he, they go through a definition of justification which they say, hey, these views are going against the definition of justification, which I agree. They go through a lot of people in the Bible who committed a lot of horrible things. How Lot was considered a righteous man in the Bible? How was he considered righteous when he offered up his daughters? How in the world does that happen, right? Uh, They go through David was considered a man after God's own heart, and they say the nation of Israel is considered God's people, and they committed everything wrong under the sun, 50,000 different ways, you know, that we can imagine. So, now this is what they're going to say. I want you to listen very carefully to this, and I want you to write this point, this, this down. In the New Testament, one can find the same sad reality we see in Israel inside the church. Those who are truly part of the body of Christ through faith alone and the person and work of Jesus Christ, but who often go their own way and live for self rather than for their Savior. That was true of Israel. It's true of many in the church. Right? Hey, we believe in the one true God of Israel, yet they went and did their own thing. Hey, we believe in the one true God, and we do our own thing. They argue that 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, to chapter 3, verse 3, describes three categories of people. All right, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, to chapter 3, verse 3, they say describes three categories of people. Now, I've taught against this view because, I remember, I, I believed in the evidential view. I believed in the evidential view because I believed in the lordship view, Right? But now I'm questioning the lordship view for because I never realized that the lordship view is kind of was kind of contradicting my definition of justification. I didn't put the two together. All right, here we go. Here, three kinds of people, three categories of people. First Corinthians uh, 
2, verse 14, through chapter 3, verse 3. And we don't have time to read that right now, but we'll, we'll come back to it. All right, here are the, everybody know the three categories of people? Okay, natural man is number one. And when we say natural man, what can you put next to that? Unsaved. Unsaved. Natural man. All right. Second category, the spiritual man. This is a believer who possesses the Holy Spirit and is yielding to the Spirit rather than the flesh. The individual's abiding in Christ. He's walking in the Spirit. He's walking as a disciple. He's enjoying fellowship with the Lord. The Holy Spirit is producing fruit in his life. He shows it. He demonstrates it. He lives it. This is the spiritual person, the spiritual man. Right? Some people's theology only allows for those two. Natural, spiritual. Okay. The third category that they're going to offer that a lot of Christians don't believe in is the carnal man or the carnal Christian. This is their description of the carnal man or the carnal Christian. This is a believer who possesses the indwelling Holy Spirit but is choosing to live according to the desires and dictates of the flesh rather than the Spirit. Failing to abide in Christ, this individual is more concerned with self in an ungodly, worldly sense or even in a pious, self-righteous sense. Either way, his focus is inward rather than Godward. Now, the view that we just read, they don't allow for the carnal man. Carnal man doesn't exist in the view that we just, uh, we re- in, the, in the four views book, not in the article. The article is obviously promoting the carnal view. All right. In the view that we read in the book, in the four views book, what were they arguing? You sow, if you sow, sow to the flesh, you're lost. You walk in the flesh, you're lost. You, you have to sow to the Spirit and walk in the Spirit. If you don't, I mean, there's, there's, you're, 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 you're proving you're not saved. They're making an argument that, we'll use Bobby as an example. Here's Bobby. He's saved. He's made a profession of faith. He believes in God. He's trusting in Christ. But guess what? He's not walking in the Spirit. He's not sowing to the Spirit. He's walking in the flesh. He's sowing to the flesh. Now they're arguing he's still saved. Because what's his salvation based off of? Christ. So we have to try to move him from carnal to spiritual. And so they're arguing that whatever, this is, now this is very, I want to make sure you note the distinction. In the book, the spirit is inside of you and it's a transforming power. It's an effective power and it will produce significant change. If it doesn't, you don't have it. This view in the article is making a different argument. The Spirit is inside of you, but you either cooperate with it, you can grieve it, you can resist it, you can walk in the flesh, or you can walk in... That there is a choice to be made for you and by you. You either cooperate and and work with it, or you push against it. 
radical different approaches to Christianity. Not even the same. In fact, they go through here. In fact, uh, let me read this. While the natural man is totally incapable of walking with God, the justified believer is trusted in Jesus Christ as his Savior can choose to walk according to the Spirit. The spiritual believer, um, or according, or, uh, that would be the spiritual believer, or according to the flesh, the carnal believer. Should a Christian choose to walk according to the desires of the flesh, then he will fail to bear the fruit of the Spirit and will instead bear the fruit of the flesh. This individual is described as one who is grieving or quenching the Holy Spirit. It's a radically different approach. Does everyone see how different this is to your Christianity? And you can go from, you can go, you can walk into one Baptist church and be taught the view that we read from the book, which says, the Spirit's in you, He's going to change you, and if you don't have that change, you're not saved. How do you know you're saved? you got the fruit of the Spirit. And how are you going to produce that? That, that fruit of the Spirit's going to be seen all the time. If it's not seen, you don't have it. Or you can walk right across the street and go to another Baptist church and they're like, hey, no, 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 no. You can be saved and, not, and be walking in the flesh. You could be saved and be producing the fruits of the flesh. Both churches claim to be Christian. Both can be a part of the exact same denomination. Right? When I say denomination, same name. Obviously, independent Baptists aren't uh, quote-unquote a denomination. And all Southern Baptist churches, even though they belong to a, a, a denomination, are actually autonomous. So we get into a whole discussion there. But in other words, all have Baptists on the name. And those, those are not even close to the same approach to Christianity. Now, which one's right? Now, the carnal view is great, right? Carnal view is great in one, in one way is because it allows you to be saved by grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ alone, right? And it allows for the fact that not all Christians are going to live godly lives. What's the problem with it? Galatians 5.21 seems to say that if you produce the works of the flesh, you're not going to heaven. The evidential view is great, right? Because it then, it demands that you live a godly life. And it, but what's the problem with it? It throws out the definition of justification. Yeah, I mean, yeah, the evidential view would say they're not even a Christian. That's true. Well, I discipline them. That's true. Yeah, allows for the carnal, carnal, the carnal view allows works to be burned up. The only thing it doesn't solve is Galatians 5.21. That's the, that's the biggest problem with it. Galatians 5.21 is a mess because it's basically saying, hey, you do these things, you're not, going, you're not saved. And it does that multiple times in the Bible. There's other lists in 1 Corinthians. Hey, if you do these things, you're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. Those lists are, are troubling. Those lists are troubling. And every view is going to struggle with that list. But those lists are also troubling you. You are saved because you still do. Exactly. I was going to say, no matter what view, those lists are troubling. Because, because, you can, because like I said, Galatians 5.21, if you look at the, or Galatians 5. 17 to 21, if you look at those works of the flesh, if we take Jesus' view of those, everyone commits them. 
Because now you're not just, unless, unless we read them only to be referring to, to external. Well, okay. But even the external, we've got believers who've committed those things. So, so it's not a simple answer. Yeah, we, well, we'd ha- yeah, we'd have to go back and work on the context. So, so I just want you to see that there are some Christians who argue, yes, you've got the Holy Spirit. Yes. But guess what? It's not automatic. Any, any fruit that it produces requires your work. Your work. And, and I think we could find some Bible verses that would agree with that, right? Put on the new. Put off the old. That's not sound like it's automatic, does it? What are some other crucify or other verses that seem to say that you need to do something correct? Yes. Over and over and over, we have verses that seem to say that we have a requirement that we must do something. That would go more with the carnal spiritual view, the automatic view. Why am I got commands to do anything? Put off, put on, mortify the flesh, crucify the flesh, do this, do that. Well, why am I doing anything? And the evidential view that claims that the Spirit is going to do this in you almost leads to a monergistic view of sanctification. You can't really have synergism in it. I mean, if God's going to do it, God's going to do it. Which leads to a whole... Remember, see how many different problems come up when you start considering all of these? So the second view, so everyone basically knows where the second... So just to conclude, we'll we'll probably come back and read just a little bit more of the second view or try to find a summary. We're not going to continue everything else in the second view. We'll try to move to the third view on Sunday. But on the second view, does anybody basic know where he's going? You're saved by faith. However, you have to have works. What works? Not works of the law, but works of the Spirit that He will produce in you. If you do not have these works, you're not saved because of the works, but your, your salvation, the works prove you are saved. And if you do not have these works, you are not saved. Now, he thinks that gets him off the hook and you say, well, I'm st- you're still saved by grace alone through faith alone. It really doesn't because he's making works absolutely necessary. And he even acknowledges he's making them necessary. But the way he gets out of it is, you're not doing the work, so therefore it's not your work. Yeah. Okay. Okay, right. All right. Any questions about the second view? Does everybody understand the second view? Does everybody understand it? Experts on it? Well, that's the view we've operated pretty much the whole time I've been a pastor, so y'all should know the second view really well. Okay. Right. But what, what ultimately happened is I, 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 the ultimate thing I realized was, wait a minute. Well, it, 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 you see the problem when you put it next to our definition of justification. Because well, we use the historical definition of justification from the London Baptist Westminster. And you're like, wait a minute. Right. And, and, yeah, and that's probably, yeah, to be fair, to be fair. Uh, the thing that started causing me more problems wasn't my definition of justification. The thing that caused me the first problem was reality. Reality caused me the first, my own reality, everyone else's reality. I'm like, well, who's saved then? And I used to, I mean, I raised that question all the time. I don't know who's saved. And remember, I even made way back in the past, remember I used to make that joke, you start draw a circle, and you're like, okay, only those people are saved. Oh, and then I say, and then the next thing you turn around, you're the only one saved. I've always struggled with that because my view, the lordship view, and, 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 I, and, I, and I know he may not want to be considered lordship, but it's the same concept. 
You're going to be judged according to your works because your work's going to prove you're saved. Because if you're truly saved, Christ is going to be Lord. You're going to produce spiritual fruit and you're going to prove it. And if you don't prove it, you're lost. And it, that only leads to now looking at everyone's life going, lost, 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 lost. Oh, no. I've got to skip me. Okay. <laughs> Someone's got to be saved. Or you have to redefine what sin is. And then you just move sin to a, the external and you forget the internal. And then you have mortal and venial. And then if I, don't commit the, if, I, if I commit the mortal, I'm not in a state of grace. If I commit the venial, I am. Which is straight up Catholicism. I think the Lord, I remember some people, I said some people refer to the Lordship view as basically being the Catholic view. I, I, I kind of agree. I mean, MacArthur would get mad if he heard that, but I don't, I don't care. It's basically Catholicism. All right, so there you go. Now, please consider that other uh, explanation about the spiritual, carnal, natural. I don't know how you feel about that. I know that there's some problems with it, but I agree that no, Galatians 5.21 is going to cause every view a problem. The Galatians 5.21, no one's going to be able to resolve the Galatians 5. Remember, every view is going to have some verse that we're not going to be able to answer. We've got to find out which works the best. The, that view of man, uh, the carnal, that, that, that works with a lot of things, right? You have your works being burned up. That, that fits 1 Corinthians 3. You... You have a, a judgment according to works that's going to deal with your rewards. You have a place, you have justification by faith. It does resolve a lot of issues here in a lot of ways. All right. All right, we'll stop there. Yeah, church discipline would make a little bit more sense because you're right. I mean, hey, if you're not showing me spiritual fruit, why am I going to discipline you? You're lost. According to this view, I mean, Hey, you're not sowing to the Spirit, you're sowing to the flesh. That's why I've got a church discipline you. Clearly, you're not saved. So why even waste the time? I can't turn you over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh because Satan already owns you. Okay. So what's even the point? Other than kicking them out of the church to purify the church. That's the only thing I could do. That would be the only benefit. I could just remove that person from being associated with the church. But, I mean, do I? Who are 1 Corinthians is calling for? When it talks about putting the person out, yeah, yeah, yeah. First, for, uh, Matthew is more trying to set up a situation where you can try to reconcile the person. First Corinthians is like, hey, this person's sleeping with his father's wife. They got to go. You got to get them out of the church. You could. So it's more about the purity of the church. So you could always make that argument that you're at least purifying the church. But then you're, what you're saying is Bobby's sin is enough to get kicked out, but you know Diane's sin is enough to stay in. Well, they're both sinners. So now what am I committing committing up with my mortal versus venial list? Venial sins, you get to stay in the church. Mortal sins, you get to go. And it's the same way for a pastor. Pastors can commit nine million venial sins. Nobody cares. Commit the mortal sin. You're gone. You're done. You're finished. Venial sins are okay, mortal sins. And, I, and, I, and I'll get 900 emails going, that's just unfair to say. That's exactly the way we work, and we all know that's the way we, we work under that system. And, and, but we just don't want to admit it. All right, let's pray. Lord God, we come before you this evening. Lord, we covered a lot of ground. Uh, I'm just thankful that we have people here on a Wednesday night to, to work on such difficult issues. I pray that as we hopefully come closer and closer to wrapping up uh, this, this look at these different views, Lord, we may not come up any closer to having answers, 
But I just hope that you will at least bless the fact that we're doing everything in our power to look at every possibility how to understand that our salvation is according to faith and grace, but yet there seems to be a judgment that deals with works. I pray that we come to a conclusion that is biblical, and whatever conclusion we come to this time, the next time, I pray that we'd be willing to once again uh, change your view if we need to. And we ask this in Jesus' name. And God's people said,